This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday, our day to talk about municipal politics. And of course, it is our last Thursday before Monday's municipal elections. And all along, I've been trying to drum up interest because this is the level of government that affects all of us most directly. Unfortunately, the advance voting numbers are not encouraging. 18% fewer people took the opportunity than in 2018, despite the fact that the advance voting period was longer. So in this time slot last week, I was honored to emcee the first of only two Toronto mayoral debates. And though some listeners have told me it made them change their minds, John Tory is still considered a shoo-in. However, some other races are up for grabs most controversially. There is Brampton with a heavy political machine working to oust Patrick Brown, who seems to attract controversy and allegations wherever he goes. And today, the publisher of The Pointer, a publication which has Brampton covered, will be a guest panelist. And now, it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of Blog TO, Councillor Joe Mehevic for Spadina Fort York, and San Graywall, founder of The Pointer in Brampton. Hello and welcome to you all. Hello. Oh. Hi there. Good morning. Good afternoon. Okay, so first I want to go around the table and ask what are the big races that you're really keeping your eye on, beginning with Lauren? Oh, there are a lot of good races. Uh, I, I'm, I mean, I'm obviously keeping my eye on their mayoral race, even though we know it's already kind of, you know, in the bag for Tory. So it seems, but um, I, I mean, there are a lot of really interesting um, issues being brought up by candidates. I don't know if you saw the second debate. Um, I. I was really interested in, in some of like kind of the younger candidates and what they had to say. Um, but I know there's no particular ward race that I have my eye on. There's just a lot going on in general. It's just unfortunate that people don't seem to be as engaged with it as as uh, we'd like them to be. And uh, Councillor Mehevic, you are the interim councillor in one of the seven Toronto wards that are do not have an incumbent. I wasn't going to say vacant. Uh, so um, I'm sure you have your eye on that race. And what do you think is going on there? Well, that that is where the action is. It's the seven races that where there aren't any, where there is not currently an incumbent. Uh, they will be interesting. Each of them uh, has a certain level of competitiveness uh, to them. They have certainly more candidates. I think the average candidate in those seven races is ten, uh, which is good, which allows for healthy debate. And we'll look forward to seeing uh, who they are. Obviously, I'm watching them. I think two of them are in a little bit slightly different category, in as much as. Uh, former councillors from 2014 to 2018 uh, are running there, namely uh, John Burnside and Vince Crisanti. Uh, they have been councillors and now are seeking to return, not get reelected, but to return to city council. So they're a little bit different, but certainly the other five will be very interesting races to races to watch, and they'll affect the tone of council depending on who gets in. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And you're being very diplomatic there about who is uh, going to step into the shoes you are filling for the moment. But uh, who do you see as the front runners in Spadina, Fort York? Um, you know, which is where we are actually sitting right now. Yes, I, I think Osma Malik will take it. I think she'll take it uh, fairly strongly. Uh, she has a long history in that area. She was a school board trustee. Uh, she is well known and has continued her community engagement and lives in, lives in the heart of the ward. So uh, I think, frankly, that one's going that way. I think Chris Moisey will go <laughs> will win in uh, in uh, Toronto Centre. Uh, Alejandro Bravo in Davenport, and I think Norm De Pasquale will take it in uh, University Rosedale. 
Oh, as opposed to Diane Sachs, who is the former environmental commissioner? Uh, that's right. I think she has shown some early signs of being strong, uh, but seems to have uh, petered out a, a little bit. Uh, I think it's still competitive. I wouldn't put a lot of money on that race to, uh, in betting for Norm, but I would put some money. Uh, I think it's tilting now uh, towards Norm from all the from all the uh, feedback that I've been receiving. Okay. So those, I think, are the big four ones that are that uh, big five that I think are going to be competitive in the next uh, in the next uh, week in a few days. Okay. Uh, Let's bring in San Graywall in Brampton. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us. Hello. Thanks for having me. So uh, what I've often said about Brampton is that there is so much uh, mud being slung in all directions that for an outsider, it's very, very hard to tell what's going on. And um, I kind of assumed that Patrick Brown still had it pretty well sewn up. I was at a Diwali event last night, and there were some people who know a lot more than me about Brampton, and they said, mm, it might be close. So what's your take? Is is it close, or is is it sewn up? Yeah, I mean, so anecdotally, it actually seems like Nikki Kaur has a very good chance, because what we're hearing from our reporters who are on the ground and from people who've gone out door knocking with candidates and from readers who are engaged with the pointer quite closely is that uh, there's a real appetite for change that, that a lot of people want to get rid of Patrick Brown after four years of chaos. Uh, but in terms of polling, Patrick Brown is using a pretty dated poll uh, back before Nikki Core had even launched her campaign that shows him comfortably ahead. Nikki Kaur and her team, led by Nick Cavallis, uh, who you probably are familiar with. Yes. His work with Toronto candidates over the years, uh, high-profile people like the Fords and John Tory. Uh, Nick Cavallis' poll, uh, his most recent poll, shows them in a dead heat, neck and neck. Uh, but we're getting information that in the last week, things have maybe, you know, as I said, trended in favor of Nikki Kaur uh, after just, Story after story, just in the last two weeks, you know, pick up the Toronto Star, you know, look at stuff that CTV's reported out, global, um, local media, the pointer, you know, probably no less than four new scandals uh, with Patrick Brown at the center. And they, this is what sorry, it's been like for the to, last four years with him. Sorry to interrupt. When, when I looked at those, they looked to me to be old scandals because it certainly wasn't the first time I heard people making allegations. I mean, uh, well, did just... You, you, look, I'm unclear, like, as, when did you hear about his personal lawyer billing $180,000? Oh, okay, not that one. The, taxpayers. The, that was due to us. The, the what the what I thought I had heard about before was this whole issue of uh, forensic audits being yeah, cancelled. Again, again, the, the two investigation reports from the third party investigator froze forensic partners. One came out on August twenty sixth, so that was the first time that evidence was released, and we and others have reported on it since. But then a second investigation report update was released. Uh, a few weeks later with with more evidence of wrongdoing by Patrick Brown. And again, those have been recently reported on. And and this is him handing out more than $500,000 to his friend Rob Godfrey for work on a project that is dead in the water, work that, according to the third-party investigator, was never even done. Money paid out to Patrick Brown's friend. No one knew about the relationship between Rob Godfrey, who happens to be the son of Paul Godfrey, the uh, the chair of Post Media. Uh, no one even knew that that there was a relationship or that he was involved in these contracts when they were issued back in 2019. All of this has just come out more recently. And Rob Godfrey's one of Patrick Brown's closest friends. Didn't he have, even have any experience? doing work in the area of bringing in a post-secondary institution. And like I said, the investigation found that much of the work was never even done. They don't even know how he was paid $500,000. The contract that was approved by council, which didn't even know who the money was going to, they thought it was going to a, a firm called SRA, which it turned out to be Rob Godfrey was the point person for that firm, and he was the one sending in the invoices, and he ends up billing 
more than $360,000 above and beyond what was approved by council for the contract. So how did that so, get paid? So have these, you fi- these things have not been known. But you're probably referring to stuff that you know, did come out in the last few years. Because, but there's just so much of it with this man. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, there seem to be also two factions on council, and it's not like the other faction is, is, is uh, Lily clean either. So I, I just don't really understand where that's coming from, because we, we follow this day to day. So the one thing that, that Patrick Brown is focused on was that they moved to uh, essentially get rid of a lot of the staff that Brown had hired or recruited who were enabling a lot of this conduct that's been dripping out, that they've, they've started to find out, you know, after the term had begun, you know, and, and for taking action, you know, on, this, on these issues that they're labeled as being problematic as well. That's not what we have found in our day-to-day coverage. You know, they did move to try to replace uh, a councillor who successfully uh, won uh, a seat at Queen's Park in the provincial election, and a court found that the process they tried to use to fill that seat, uh, although the court made it crystal clear there was no ill intent, and it was a very complex procedural matter that, like, legally had to be kind of worked out, but Brown has kind of vilified them for moving to fill that seat by someone that was deemed to be friendly to those other councillors. They, in our observation, in our reporting, have simply been trying to clean things up. And for that, they get painted all of a sudden as being one half of the problem. So what is uh, the bottom line? Can Nikki Kaur unite the Brampton Council? And what will it come down to? Will it come down to uh, basically the local alliances or what? Uh, as to her ability to unite um, the, the council, uh, it, it's unclear. She seems very bold. She was one of the key whistleblowers that came out. Like, she has a very unique backstory. She's a lawyer but she was also a fairly senior employee inside City Hall. And from that vantage point and in her position, as she became aware of things that were going on, she came out as a whistleblower very publicly, you know, offered up evidence. Patrick Brown was using city staff to sell memberships for Peter McKay when Peter McKay was vying for the CPC leadership ahead of the 2020, uh, 2021 federal election. She provided uh, WhatsApp messages for, directly from Patrick Brown instructing senior staff to, during working hours to sell memberships for Peter McKay. It's all been documented. She came forward with other evidence, other information of wrongdoing. So a lot of people see her as being quite bold, uh, quite a lot of courage to do that as a whistleblower. Whether that translates to being able to unite counsel, I really can't say. Uh, in terms of what would be needed um, you know, for her to get a victory, yeah, I think that various constituencies across Brampton, you know, if they all coalesce, and as I said, a lot of people who are saying, you know, broken promise after broken promise to a lot of groups has caused a lot of, like, ill feelings towards Patrick Brown, and that's his pattern, right? Like, when he was PC leader, um, you know, look, look at what he did as a CPC candidate himself this spring, where the party itself had to boot him out of the contest for allegations that he violated uh, federal elections laws. So, you know, it, when, he, when he undermines, you know, a lot of individuals and their efforts to support him, those previous supporters, you know, get quite resentful. Can she bring them together? I guess we'll find out. Well, we will find out on Tuesday. Okay, well, that will be definitely one of the races to watch. And then we have this interesting phenomenon of two former provincial party leaders trying to be mayors. We've got Andrea Horvath in Hamilton, and uh, the uh, current mayor there is not running again. And we have Stephen Del Duca in Vaughan, Lauren. I love it. I, I've heard from a lot of people. I'm not following those races too closely, but people are saying that the Hamilton election with Andrea Horath is way more interesting right now than some of the other elections taking place. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see if they come out on top, either of them. And I think just based on what I'm seeing sentiment online, I, I do think both are 
you know, have really good chances. It'll be interesting to see because I believe it was um, um, someone was saying last week that it's kind of backwards, right, to go from provincial politics back to municipal politics. But because municipal politics are so important, it, it's interesting to see people who have, you know, been in uh, higher levels of government going back to, you know, more grassroots and not so much grassroots, but you know what I mean? More like hands-on well, politics. And you got to wonder, yeah. I mean, if people whose uh, job experience is, is being a politician, uh, that's a good bet for another job. Joe, do you have a view of that? Oh, oh yes. No, absolutely. I don't use the term uh, levels of government because I do think City Hall is an order of government. And in fact, it's the order of government that is closest to the people and has the most direct impact on people's lives. If we uh, if we at the local level screw up, then the toilets don't work, then the water do- water doesn't work, the public transit doesn't work, the snow doesn't get cleared, the garbage doesn't get picked up. All of which pretty, has been happening, by the way. Stuff. Well, to one, uh, to one extent or another, I guess. And that's why it's really, really important to have good local leadership. So I don't regard, frankly, uh, Del Duca or Horvath uh, going to municipal politics as a step, quote unquote, step down. It's just a it's a it's a lateral move and people will make a decision on the uh, the adequacy of them as candidates and as potential mayors. Uh, on their on their merits and their their campaigns, I hear that both those campaigns are actually going well in both their directions, both Andrea Horvath and uh, Stephen Del Duca. Um, yeah, but at the end of the day, uh, they get to be uh, do good do some good leadership work in municipalities that uh, deserve good leadership. And you know, Hamilton is not a small potatoes uh, city, uh, nor is Vaughan. And uh, you know, all power to them if they pull it off. Uh, San Graywall, you uh, cover municipalities other than Brampton. We've got Mississauga. Bonnie Crombie is strong, but there's a, a big issue there. She wants to separate from Peel. Uh, is that important to residents? Yeah, I, I think it is. You know, to understand the dynamics of Mississauga, so over 700,000 people, the sixth largest city in Canada. And it's hindered in many ways as a lower tier of municipality in the regional system. So it's one of the three municipalities of Peel region, Caledon, Brampton, Mississauga. And Bonnie Crombie and, and many in Mississauga, uh, going back to Hazel McCallion, uh, have long wanted to be an independent single tier municipality just like Toronto with, you know, more taxation powers, with more independent, not relying on regional government for certain budgetary decisions, not having, you know, to share police services, not having to share uh, and have uh, the regional government look after infrastructure. It basically just wants to be uh, more independent and autonomous. And then through one tier of government, you can focus a little bit more acutely on the issues that Mississauga residents prioritize. In regional government, you tend to get this competition. Mostly rural Caledon can get things pushed through and even budgetary pressures where Caledon's bad growth planning ends up costing Mississauga taxpayers who have to subsidize those taxpayers in Caledon because there's a regional component to the blended property tax. So for a lot of reasons, I could get into a whole host of other things that uh, Bonnie Crombie and others in Mississauga have put forth as reasons why uh, they want to split and be independent. You know, they believe it costs tens of millions of dollars additionally to Mississauga property taxpayers for costs that they have to pick up at the regional level, being the largest of the three municipalities. So yeah, it's a big issue. It's not one that voters understand. Like, you could go to a hundred doors and you know, maybe one person might be familiar with, as Bonnie Crombie is putting it, Mexit, uh, the Mississauga exit. <laughs> I love <laughs> um, it. So as Mexit, long as she doesn't know, but, go the way of Liz Truss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the but the dynamics of regional government and lower tier municipalities and, and why she's trying to do it and the importance of it, it, that would be lost upon almost every voter. So it's just not an election issue, but Bonnie Crombie is going to be elected and it is going to be an issue because that's going to be one of her, you know, main mandates. 
But, it, I mean, the cities, uh, even Toronto is just a creature of the province. It's, you know, we saw what Rob Ford was able, able Rob Ford, sorry, what Doug Ford, you know, he, with a stroke of a pen in the last election, just reduced the number of uh, council seats. So uh, it, it's, at the end of the day, it's, it's up to Queen's Park, right? Um, yeah, I mean, Queen's Park would have to sign off. Uh, they would have to allow Mississauga to separate. But, you know, the point I think that's being made is that as an independent municipality, not a lower-tier municipality in regional government, they get way more autonomy. Like, just just look at the taxation powers yeah. that Toronto has that Mississauga doesn't have. Those aren't even in Mississauga's toolbox. And, so that's just one example. And would um, what I've read is that Brampton would want to follow suit. Do, is no, that the no, case? No, that's, that's not correct. Uh, Brampton, their position when uh, during this term of council, if you'll remember, the province actually initiated a process across the province to find out if some of the regions should be split up. And in that comprehensive review, Brampton was very clear it does not want to leave uh, regional government. Uh, Patrick Brown had his own reasons for that, and uh, there's generally a sentiment in Brampton that because its build-out is not complete, it enjoys having its growth It continued to be partially subsidized by Mississauga. Its argument is that, look, we were there to support Mississauga through its build-out, through its heavy growth period. Brampton still has some of that growth left, and Caledon is going to explode. But Miss Saga is saying, look, we don't want to subsidize that. Yeah, who could blame them? <laughs> right. Um, a little bit of a, you know, in the weeds type of inside baseball issue. Well, it's it's important, actually. Uh, you know, even Toronto uh, is going to have, what, a billion dollar shortfall. They're going to have to find it and they need more, quote, revenue well, tools. Run a deficit. <laughs> yeah. You can't run a deficit. And interesting, uh, so, I mean, it was the response to a question, but John Tory uh, said he'd look at tolling the two city-owned highways. Uh, but with the other breath, he said he has no indication that Doug Ford would approve it. And even Kathleen Wynne, like she, it, she treated him like a little boy in short pants when he brought it up with her. It's Yeah, yeah. That's for me, you know, look... <laughs> I think it's crystal clear that municipalities in this province, and particularly the biggest city in this country, it needs funding, you know, tools. Because the infrastructure gap, the decay that we're starting to see, the problems that just cannot be addressed with Band-Aid solutions, they're becoming self-evident to almost every resident. You know, and it's a bit of a shell game, right? You know, you only have one pot of money. There's only one taxpayer. But, but the fact is, we need to get more revenue allocated to these municipalities that are dying. They, they are, like, look at the size of the infrastructure gap for municipalities across the whole, the whole country, you know. And I, I think between the federal government, we know the federal government were the ones who downloaded everything onto the provinces. That was a liberal government. And then the provinces, and, and, you know, Mike Harris was the premier of the day. He turned around and immediately downloaded a lot of those costs to the municipalities. And we've never since seen properly proper revenue tools. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, I, Aaron, go ahead. Yeah, I think this to, is to more, yeah, more about not so much government funding, but people, ta- um, charging people to use Toronto's infrastructure. So the idea of towing the gardener, which you know, is disproportionately expensive compared to everything else. The city is spending so much money on rebuilding this crumbling highway. And, I mean, I think it's only yeah, fair it's for it's people not, not, to... Sorry interrupt, but I just have to make this point. Uh, sorry, sorry. Let's let's have Lauren finish <laughs> oh, her no. point. We, we... I, I was just going to say, like, a lot of the sentiment that I've seen is people would love to see the gardener told, just because it's a lot of people coming from out of town going through Toronto using it. Um, using our infrastructure and making it crumble. So I think there's a lot of support for that idea. I, I don't know if it will ever happen, but I think, you know, there would be a lot of in support. Toronto, in Toronto, yeah. there, I think there was the last time as well. Yeah. Uh, Joe, your view of that? Yes. Yeah, so the Don Valley Parkway and the Garner Expressway were downloaded to the city in previous with previous provincial governments. It is costing the city of Toronto a mint to repair and to uh, basically replace. It is costing the city of Toronto for the next 10 years, 
44% of its total capital budget. So every second dollar virtually for 10 years is going to maintain and to fix the Gardner Expressway itself. Road pricing is not a new concept in the world. All the big municipalities, the global municipalities around the world have some form of it. I think it's very, it was very brave in 2000, what was it, 2016, I believe it was around then, that uh, John Tory proposed it and very bravely said that he would defend it. And yes, then Kathleen Wynne's uh, government said uh, no to it. If the Premier of Ontario wants the city of Toronto to have a strong mayor, and if the strong mayor is saying that he needs that revenue to keep that highway up, then I think uh, that's a legitimate uh, request and should be honoured by the province, by this provincial government, different than what the previous uh, provincial government uh, did. With that money, you could then fix the Gardner Expressway, and then you could have some money allocated to other key priority projects like Queen's Key East LRT that needs to be built, like the Eglinton East LRT that needs to be completed into Scarborough uh, Town Centre. That's what other big cities, the Londons of the world, are doing. They're using it as a way to not only gain some additional revenue tools, but also as a way of gaining a modal shift to get people out from one way of traveling in the city and towards another way. Right now, like if you think about it on a big picture level, why is it that we as residents have to pay when we use the TTC, but the roads are free? Maybe we need to adjust that a little bit. That's what road pricing is about. And uh, I compliment uh, the mayor on, on putting forth uh, this initiative and saying that, yeah, if there's an openness, he'll explore it with the, with the province of Ontario. Okay, San, you wanted to say something about this. Everything that was just said, like, you know, you, you travel like throughout North America, you know, in different parts of the world. And we know that this the system of, of road charging, you know, tolls, um, you know, even to uh, calibrate it to surge charging so that it's going to be more expensive at different times of the day. Absolutely, motorists should be paying, you know, these, these fees. Uh, I, I just would like to see it uh, incorporated in a, in a system brought in regionally. I think that uh, commuter, commuters across the GTHA should all be paying for the use of highways. Um, I don't think uh, the burden should fall on, you know, any particular jurisdiction. But at the same time, I don't think only Toronto should get to, um, you know, receive the revenue from those tolls. Well, Toronto really uh, I think needs other, it. other municipalities, it, it really should be a regional approach. That's my point. Uh, I mean, okay, yeah, but Toronto, uh, yeah. we have to pay for those highways. 40% uh, of the budget is going towards the government. Okay, I'm looking at the time. We're basically out of time, so I just want to go around and, and get some kind of prediction or Lauren. Um, no predictions here. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm cautious to make any predictions, but I am kind of interested to see who wins in um, Etobicoke North. It's the first time in 22 years that a Ford hasn't been running. So to see what kind of happens there will be interesting. Um, I, I mean, I predict that Tory will likely win based on, you know, the advanced numbers and, and that voter turnout will be low. But I hope that the city proves me wrong, that uh, voter turnout is high. Sam? Yeah, I so I, uh, really easy one for Mississauga. Bonnie Crombie is going to have a huge plurality. You know, we're talking she's going to win by 60, 70, maybe even 80 percent. Wow. Um, Brampton, I can't make a prediction. Nikki Core and Patrick Brown, I think it's going to be close. Uh, I would like to just quickly mention Caledon because it's going to be so key in terms of growth in the GT, GTA. It's, it's the largest geographical community. It's bigger than Toronto. It only has about 90,000 residents. It's probably going to get to you know, four or 500,000 residents. And you've got a pro-developer candidate, Jennifer Innes, who's just basically been in lockstep with the development community. And then you've got Annette Groves. They're both current councillors, and Annette Groves is a proponent of smart growth. Uh, she really wants to manage the growth in a, in a different way and do it with sustainability and the protection of Caledon's rural landscape and its green spaces. So there's a clear choice there in Caledon. Uh, close race, uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know who's going to win it, and that's about it. Okay, Joe, last word to you. Yes, well, I think uh, Toronto uh, will have a low voter turnout, and I think there'll be a lot of reflections on what that means for the 
Torontonians' appetite for democracy and maybe other meanings that will be uh, be gleaned from uh, from this election. Uh, I think the mayor Tory will uh, will have, I believe he will win. I think he will win with a fairly strong majority. And then the question will be, what does he do with that uh, majority and that uh, that amount of support from Torontonians? Um, I, I suspect that he will take some uh, stronger initiatives. Maybe road tolling will be one of them. Around the housing front will be other. Uh, it's what he does with that majority. There'll be some small changes on councillors on the council floor with seven uh, new councillors or renewed councillors on. And um, I think that will provide some new energy. My sense in the last little while uh, coming back is, is that there's a certain tiredness at city council. Maybe they will bring new life uh, to city council. And I look forward to uh, to seeing that. But we do need we do need a democratic refresh at uh, at city hall and um uh, yeah, the day after the election will be the start of that process as well. Okay, that sounds good. Now, I just want to remind people that we are having a special election show uh, when the polls close at 8 o'clock. I expect that a lot of results will come in pretty quickly. Uh, we're going to have all kinds of people coming in and out to give you the results and analysis, including Lauren O'Neill. Super stoked for this. It's going to be a fun night, an interesting night. It's, it's going to be a fun night. We're going to have a former mayoral candidate, George Smitherman. Uh, we're going to have a backroom analyst type guy, Michael Diamond. We're going to have Christine and Bob coming in with results. Uh, it'll be fun. That's, and I'll, I'll be co-hosting with Marissa Lennox. So never a dull moment, people. Tune in here. And right now, thank you so much, San Graywall and Joe Mehevic and Lauren O'Neill. And we're taking a break. And we'll be back. We'll tell you about a whole new concept to protect elders in the community. And that is a vulnerable person's registry when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, We've had some very important developments affecting our elders in long-term care, and they've been flying under the radar. So most of us probably didn't realize that mask mandates for those facilities have been lifted. And actually, I just saw an alert from uh, the Liberal Party that they are going to be demanding an answer about why Why did that happen when just last week uh, the chief medical officer of health said, you know, people, it's up to you, but you should keep masking in high-risk settings. Now, also, there are some new numbers from Kai High, uh, Canadian Institute for Health Information, that show that seniors in long-term care were three times more likely to be prescribed antidepressants than those living in the community, and eight times more likely to be prescribed antipsychotics than those living in the community, with prescriptions rising like from 37% to 43%. Now, this phenomenon of uh, basically, I would say, drugging people in long-term care isn't new, but the jump in numbers is. And they point to yet another reason that most people want to age in place. Mississauga has a new program that is designed to make that choice more safe. It is a vulnerable person's registry. And here to tell us how it works, we have Mississauga Fire and Emergency Services Deputy Chief Samuel Williams. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. So how does this registry work? So it's it's a very simple process where residents can visit a website or they can fill it out in person at select locations. Uh, They self-identify, they indicate to us some simple information about what sort of support they would need in the event of an emergency. And then that system is uh, transmitted to our computer-aided dispatch. So our responding firefighters are alerted to a resident at the location of an emergency who may require additional assistance with mobility or visual hearing impairments, oxygen use, various other uh, obstacles we may encounter. Is 
Is that in response to some problems you encountered where, you, for instance, firefighters responded to an emergency and they had no idea of the condition of the person they were trying to help? Uh, not a specific occurrence at all. We have, uh, in some of our larger condominium living settings, there's some code requirements to maintain a list of people who may require assistance in an emergency. This just allows our our team to have that information much earlier in an emergency. So this, this allows the responding firefighters to have it en route to the address as opposed to uh, waiting till they arrive there to find out. Mm-hmm. And uh, do these exist in other jurisdictions? Where did you get the idea from? So there's uh, various other jurisdictions that have this. Uh, police services have it. There's actually a group. Uh, the Alzheimer's Society maintains one themselves as well. So there's, there's various other municipalities that have that. Uh, this is something that's new to, to Mississauga Fire, but it's not uncommon across the province. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, are you hoping, do you have any kind of target? Are, are, you, are you going to uh, measure the success of this program? We, we measure the success of everything that we, uh, we try to do. So we've identified some maybe at-risk groups within our communities, and we've reached out to those, uh, those organizations to make partnerships to get the information available. Everyone can view the information right now on Mississauga's website. Uh, we have postcards that we'll be dropping off at uh, libraries, at uh, certain community independent living settings. And whenever Mississauga Fire public educators are out in the community, we'll have this information with us as well. So uh, lots of opportunities to interact with our residents and share this valuable information with them. And uh, how are you going to measure the success? So we'll be able to track as people enroll. Uh, obviously, there's no real uh, floor to what success looks like. We want people to self-identify for themselves or enroll their families and then just use of this tool and continued use because the information is maintained in our system for one year. So when we see people uh, re-enrolling year after year, that, that will show us that this is a tool that people value. Uh, anything else you'd like to leave us with? No, I just thank you for your time today. Okay, thank you for yours, Samuel Williams. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, that was Deputy Chief Samuel Williams uh, from Mississauga. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we will get up to date with what is happening with those protests in Iran. And uh, the latest little... Uh, I don't even know how to describe it there, but there was this whole issue of a female rock climber and she competed without her hijab. And she then, uh, there were fears for her safety. She uh, issued an apology that people thought was a forced apology with a pretty complicated excuse. So we'll drill down on that. But the protests against the regime in Iran continue day by day. We'll talk about that after the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now we will get an update on the protest movement in Iran, where demonstrations against the regime are ongoing. They were, of course, set off by the death in custody of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was accused of improperly wearing her hijab. And this week, rock climber Elnaz Rejavi issued an apology for competing without her hijab, which had been taken as a sign of protest. Uh, she uh, said uh, the apology was considered by many people to be coerced, and uh, there were fears for her safety. Uh, basically, she said, oh, I was asked to compete out of uh, time uh, earlier than I expected, and I didn't have time to put it on, or I forgot to put it on. Anyway, we have seen widespread protests before in Iran. What is different this time is that these are led by women. 
And so let's go to Azam Jangravi, an Iranian paralegal and human rights activist and former political prisoner who lives in Toronto. Welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi. Hi. Uh, So what is going on? in Iran right now. The protests are continuing, uh, but apparently people are being beaten and arrested. Uh, Actually, in the last few years, the fluency of protests has changed. We see uh, public protests happen more uh, frequently. In many cases, protests were uh, related to bad economic conditions, uh, such as uh, fuel uh, price increase. But this time, protests uh, started for women's rights, and that's why uh, a woman life freedom become one of the most important slogans uh, of people who are protesting. It's not just about uh, the economic aspect of life, uh, but rather about human rights, women's rights, children's rights, as well as protesting the highly um, uh, corrupted system that is too uh, rigid to change and too uh, violate to make um, a dialogue with. They have achieved many women and children simply asking for their basic rights. Uh, what about uh, what do you know about the case of the rock climber El Nazarejavi? Uh, there were fears for her safety. I had heard a report that her brother was arrested, so she went back to Iran. And then uh, last night, I saw pictures of what uh, you know the regime seemed to have orchestrated a, a big welcome for her, and she appeared with some of them, but uh, I strongly su- suspect that she didn't have a lot of choice with that. Uh, yeah. Uh, hence, people want uh, the whole regime gone, and this time, I can see how uh, um, democracy and uh, uh, people um, um, I think something uh, bad uh, fundamentally changed. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, I, I think we can uh, learn from Ella's story a lot. She's a brave woman who peacefully protested for her right to express herself uh, the way uh, she wants by uh, removing her hijab during an international competition. I'm sure she knew uh, that this uh, will cost her uh, and uh, put her in danger since Islamic Republic regime wants uh, women to be silent and follow their uh, Sharia law. Um, I think uh, this is something that years of Angle of the Street also try to do. Starting with Wida Movahed trying to uh, show to world that they oppose mandatory hijab and support freedom of expression and uh, women's rights. Based in uh, various sources of news, she has been uh, pressured by the Islamic Republic uh, to say it was not protested and she just mistakenly removed her hijab. Uh, due to stress from competition. I'm personally sure uh, that this is not true. I think a human rights entity should support such uh, a courageous act and uh, pressure the Islamic Republic to stop forces uh, uh, confession by protesters. Uh, so what will it take to uh, basically get rid of that regime? Because we've seen widespread protests before, uh, but the regime uh, seems to have all the levers. Azam, are you with us? She's not with us. Okay, uh, so let me give the numbers out again and see if 
people, uh, what are you thinking about in terms of what is going on there? There's been a lot of international support. We've seen women overseas, uh, celebrities cutting their hair. That's one of the signs of protest, uh, certainly taking off hijabs. Uh, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty, and uh, the question is, what should we be doing to support women and others in Iran? Well, you know, one of the things that I've heard is that what's different this time is that the protest is spearheaded by women, but men are also participating, you know, uh, women's rights are human rights. That's a a pretty well-known slogan. But uh, you have the Revolutionary Guard, which is in league with uh, the uh, Ayatollahs, and uh, they are still pretty firmly in charge. Uh, Do we have a Zomback? Okay. Azam, how long have you been in Toronto? What was your experience with the regime? Uh, I'm uh, here for three years. Uh, Actually, uh, in 2018, I was protested against mandatory hijab. Um, I was arrested by um, um, the police uh, security forces, and I was sentenced for three years. They want to take my uh, to uh, take my. They wanted to take my daughter away from me, and I um, forced to uh, flee my country. Uh, and the government of Canada um, helped me a lot. Um, everything was hard for me. They uh, were a lot of pressure on me and my family. And uh, right now, I uh, understand uh, a large Jacobi situation uh, because they could everything that they can. They uh, do anything that they could, you know. Uh, uh, I think Elna's right now under pressure a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the women who are protesting in Iran, um, they seem to be very brave, putting themselves in a lot of danger. I, I, I think we don't have anything to lose, you know. Um, uh, women, Iranian women, uh, fighting, chanting uh, for, their lo- for their rights, for their lives. We don't have any any right in Iran, you know. Um, I was not protesting uh, for mandatory hijab. That is only one of many ways women's rights is violated in Iran. Women don't have the right to divorce or custody of their children. Based on the Sharia law, they cannot work or travel without their husband's approval. So I, I... Uh, or women in Iran protest all the ways um, for pressure, for torture, that Islamic Republic on them. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, do you think that the uh, international community is giving you enough support? Do you want to see Canada doing any more? Um, I really appreciate uh, that the government of Canada uh, um, uh, started to uh, uh, help Iranian people, Iranian community. They sanctioned um, um, some Iranian uh, people who are terrorists. And um, I think we need more. We need more. It's just a start. We need more to help. Uh, women and all, all of Iranian people, uh, because we don't have any voice in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, What else would you like to see happening? I mean, do you expect this just to keep going on? I hope one day 
uh, I came back to my country and uh, women have freedom. Every, every people, every Iranian people have freedom, you know. And we, I hope someday we would change the regime, the Islamic Republic regime. And we have democracy in Iran. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, it's uh, It's been quite a long time since the Islamic Republic has been around. It's been since 1979, of course. For 43 years. Yep. Uh, 43 years, and before that you didn't have democracy either. You had the Shah. Um, actually, w- women in Iran for um, uh, in the past, we have family law, you know. We have right to divorce or some rights for women. But um, when the Islamic um, uh, Republic of the Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, um, the first law that the Ayatollah Khamenei removed it, uh, about family law, you know? Um, they removed this law about women. And the first uh, demonstration in the Islamic Republic of Iran about women's rights in uh, 8th of March, uh, uh, Two years after uh, the revolution of the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, they um, uh, chanting and um, they uh, chant and uh, fight for their uh, right about uh, mandatory hijab. Yeah, it's been a very long, uh, long time and a long struggle. Azam Jangravi, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Bye bye. Okay, um, that is all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and there's a lot to talk about. We have uh, this sort of very under-the-radar removal of mask mandates in long-term care. We have last-minute issues cropping up in the elections that are coming up. So... uh, Call back tomorrow if you couldn't get through or if there's something else that you would like to discuss. It, of course, is your day to talk about the issues that you want to talk about. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.